Hello again, welcome to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science of luxury items. We're very excited this week because it's the first anniversary of our podcast. One year ago, approximately, on a typically rainy Seattle day, we launched this podcast as a passion project of mine coming out of the pandemic. I wanted, and eventually Demos came on board, to have more fun conversations about science and hopefully spark some curiosity by talking about the science of items most people have experience with. It's been super fun and we're so happy that we can still do this podcast and that we've launched season two. So for our first anniversary, we're going to talk about the science behind typical first anniversary gifts. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper and the more modern one is crystal. So I'm going to take on paper and Demos will take on crystal. So I think I will go first. Okay. I have the traditional one. So the older version of what to give for a first anniversary is paper. In fact, it's what I gave Demos for our first anniversary. According to historians, the Chinese were the first to invent true paper. The Egyptians developed a paper-like product 4,000 years ago by weaving papyrus mats and then pounding them. And obviously, humans have been writing on anything that they can get their hands on for quite some time. Post-it notes. Post-it notes are the best. The Chinese paper was made from a pulp of mulberry bark, hemp, and cloth rags. The pulp was pressed to remove the water and then sun-dried to make a sheet of paper. This process is replicated throughout the Middle East, Africa, and Europe about 600 years later. For many years after, paper was made from discarded rags and clothing and was scarce due to a shortage of used cloth. By the mid-1800s, European papermakers rediscovered the use of tree fibers for papermaking, and that is paper as we know it now, essentially. Wonderful. So do you want to know how paper is made? I do. So today, almost all paper is made from wood pulp. You can either mechanically or chemically break down the wood, and you have two things left. Fibers, which are mostly cellulose from the tree's cells, and lignin. And lignin is the glue that held together the fibers in the wood. And so you, this breakdown process gives you wood pulp, which is essentially all the fibers with the lignin removed. So to do that, the trees go to a paper mill, the bark is removed. For mechanical breakdown, you have grindstones that tear wood fibers apart in water, or trees are chipped into smaller pieces and then ground to fibers. For the chemical method, you would cook wood chips in chemicals that help break down the wood. And um, when you recycle paper, what happens when you recycle paper? Yeah, I would be interested in that. So you remove all the chemicals like adhesives and ink, and the wood fibers are just repulped. This shortens the individual fibers so they can only be recycled several times, and that's why new pulp is mixed into paper products. Mm -hmm. That's why it's rare to see 100% recycled paper. Okay. Because you're going to lose um, strength in the paper. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So after you make your wood pulp, you wash it, bleach it, and then pound it. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. It sounds like the technique for making paper. Mm-hmm. hasn't changed much. And then there's additional chemicals you can add to make different types of paper. And then you slush... The slush is added to a screen, and after the water drains off, it's moved through heated cylinders to press and dry and smooth it. So that's essentially paper. So ancient. I know. So useful. But I did find an interesting article about de-inking paper. So 
as I said, when you recycle paper, you have to take the ink off. And right now, chemical agents are used to do that. Like a bleach or something. So, not only bleach, but... So they're pretty strong chemicals, and there's you know, the issue of what to do with the waste and things like that. So in this article in Chemosphere that uh, came out this year, a research group uh, used 12 cellulose-producing bacteria. They picked the one that was the best producer, and they isolated the cellulase enzyme. So that's the enzyme that's going to break down the cellulose. And they're using that for enzymatic de-inking of photocopy papers. So, Enzymes. Yeah, made from bacteria. The smart way to do chemical bonds and unbonds. Eh, that's what I thought. All right, what did you find about crystals? I thought this was going to be an easy one. Um, crystals are pretty fascinating in that they are examples of self-organizing systems. Hmm. So in a world where entropy and a universe where entropy rules supreme, <laughs> there is the uh, fact that certain things on the earth organize into their own regular shapes. Crystals are this kind of an anti-chaos. While chaos can have any number of ways to begin, self-organizing systems turn chaos into order and end up virtually the same final state, regardless of how they might have started. Hmm. So with chaos, you can have any number of things mm -hmm. that can start chaos. But um, crystals can have any number of starting states and still end up crystals. So I thought that was a neat difference between the two. Organization and multiplicity um, are eventually what make crystals into crystals. Mm -hmm. They're defined by order like lattices and polyhedra and other regular building blocks. Uh, these building blocks are comprised of atoms that give us things like diamonds or, in the case of graphite, pencil lead. Both are crystals. Mm. And the conditions that lead to the different, to that specific type of crystal form really just have to do with the existence of maybe a temperature or pressure. So ancient Greeks thought quartz was ice that had frozen so hard it could not melt. So the ancient Greek word is crystallos, or ice, and that's how we get the word crystal, which I actually didn't know. Yeah, that's, me either. So that interesting. Really, that was neat to know that, that was a Greek word. Crystals can be made from just about anything. In physics, the term crystal describes a solid substance with internal symmetry and related regular surface pattern. This configuration, called a crystal structure, recurs so regularly that you can predict the organization of atoms throughout the crystal. Hmm. Some of these techniques include things like crystallography. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's where you like um, you can beam, for example, x-rays mm -hmm. uh, into a crystal. and Get then, the structure. Yeah, and while you turn the crystal, the bouncing of the x-rays off the internal structure of the crystal gives you a vision of where the atoms are. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting way to see atoms without having the tools to see atoms. Now, in the arrangement the, um, that carries on beyond a few neighboring atoms is called a long-range order. So if that, if that arrangement is that way, sort of like a marching band in formation that just keeps on going, um, you can get um, large and regular-shaped crystals 
that um, end up being uh, pretty amazing to look at. Yeah. You know, it's really super interesting because I was oh, just yeah, looking totally. this up. So there's lots of materials that can form crystals, as mm-hmm. you said, um, salts, minerals, metals, sugar, semiconductors, and biological molecules. And so the, how they do protein and like RNA structures is they crystallize it. They get a crystalline form of it, and that's how they do the X-ray crystallography to determine the shapes. Oh, wow. That's, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I, I'd never thought of X-ray crystallography for biological systems. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting hybrid. Short-range order is another form of crystal, and it's kind of helpful in that in the case of like making solar panels, you can use short-range crystals that are called amorphous. So you have crystals, but the grain boundaries are so close that you don't ever get a chance to build a large, continuous, regular shape, but instead have a lot of sort of mini or proto-crystals tapped together, sort of like wood pulp in the paper. (laughs) However, this is not such a bad thing. Yes, for example, solar panels made of amorphous crystals are not as efficient as as monocrystalline solar panels or polycrystalline mm-hmm. solar panels but you can still get 20 to 30 percent efficiency in conversion of that type of, of energy to light and to, and to electricity mm-hmm. and still have an, a very economically viable product and still maintain a lot of the characteristics of the crystal form so bonds in crystals are started by ions positively or negative charged atoms, and link up by ionic or covalent bonds. Bonds pack up into various compact stable shapes called coordination polyhedra. It's a big bunch of words. It is a big bunch of words. (laughs) We'll have to add that to our glossary at the end. Um, And so a polyhedron is a geometry term Mm -hmm. for many-sided shape. And then when you have a coordinated amount of these, you're simply stacking things together like Legos, which would be an example of a coordination polyhedra. All right. Well, next time our kid built something out of Legos, I'm going to be like, that's a very nice coordinated polyhedron. <laughs> yes. And he might give you a funny look or just keep on sure building and, and ignore you. <laughs> a crystal structure is characterized by its unit cell. And so this is where we get the shapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a small imaginary box containing one or more atoms in a specific arrangement spatial arrangement the unit cells are stacked in three-dimensional space to form the crystal an example is a silica crystal let's say a small central ion of silicon might be surrounded by four large ions of oxygen this forms a triangular pyramid or a tetrahedron manganese oxide which gets a lot of use in electric vehicle batteries for example the small central manganese ion lies within six larger oxygen ions one above, one below, four in the square around the middle. This forms a three-dimensional diamond, or octahedron. Now, the symmetry of crystals is constrained by the requirement that the unit cells should stack perfectly with no gaps. Mm. There are 219 possible symmetries. And so this, these are the rules of your Lego game, okay. essentially. All right. It's called crystallographic space groups. So... It's another thing we could do on, on the Lego packaging is change it. To, <laughs> Crystal, to, crystallographic space group number four. <laughs> yes, there you go. There's only 219 Lego kits you get to play with, basically. I wonder how many Lego kits there actually are. There's got to be more than 219. There's tens of thousands, I think. 
But um, those space groups are grouped into seven, seven crystal systems, such as cubic or hexagonal. And, um, and like, for example, water ice is a hexagonal crystal system. And then cubic would be like a halite or salt. It's mm. a great example of a cubic, a cubic crystal. So um, those are some interesting examples. Crystals boast a range of handy qualities. And I brought up solar cells, which are crystals, silicon crystals, mm -hmm. that um, interact. And the reason we choose silicon is because it interacts with light from the sun. Mm. And one of the neat things with these crystals is when sunlight hits the silicon, a lot of electrons start to bubble up to the surface mm -hmm. like boiling water. And um, what you do is you just put a few wires on top of the solar cell and those electrons can move out of the top of the crystal and go back to the bottom. So um, it's a neat way to make a little electron pump, otherwise known as a battery. Cool. There's also piezoelectric properties of crystals. Did you know that if you squeeze a crystal really hard, you mm. can actually charge it up and turn it into something electrical? Like a battery. But like how hard? I mean, it's not, you're not like somebody, like a person couldn't squeeze a crystal that hard. It depends. So it's very common to have piezoelectric microphones in, of all things, let's say record players. Uh, also piezoelectric microphones are used as a different way to measure heart sounds in an electrocardiogram. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like we couldn't go like take a piece of quartz from our kid's rock collection and squeeze it and... No, no, certainly not. And you'd have to prepare it. You'd yeah. have to maybe uh, paint both sides with some gold paint or something, something conductive, and connect wires to it. But I can guarantee you this. If you were to take that and hit it with a hammer, mm. you would probably get 10,000 volts. <laughs> and yes, it would shock you. Yes, that sounds very so. shocking. Yeah. Um, we have no glossary or cocktail party facts this week, but just our sincere appreciation for everyone who is listening and as always, a very special thank you to Demos, our audio engineer and my co-host. If you'd like to get us a present for our anniversary, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're also on Good Pods. That sounds like a great present. Or please share this podcast with someone you think would like it. We'll be back next time with a deeper exploration of the science of color. Right.